Welcome everyone back to the broadcast. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I am joined on this uh, sizzling Friday afternoon. I won't say sizzling. It's like 68 degrees, but it feels warm uh, by Tracy Pearson. Tracy, how are you? Good. Warmer than that, don't you think? No? I don't know. I'm like not... seven, 70 degrees out here in Canoe Valley. 70, well, 72. I'm in, I'm in um, El Segundo. Te- little the, temperate El Segundo. Where the uh, wind comes sweeping down the plain. <laughs> and uh, currently it says on my phone, it says it's 61 degrees. Wow. Okay. That's not, that's, yeah. That's that doesn't, not what I'll tell you that doesn't feel right, but, you know, whatever. We'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Happy New Year to everyone out there. Sure. Right? Happy New Year. Yeah. Have Happy we 2021. Ha- we haven't had a New Year uh, broadcast, have we? No. No. Yeah. This is it. Yeah. This is it. This is the this is the beginning of great things. One this is say. it. It's a whole new era in UCLA sports. Yeah. Does everyone believe me? No. <laughs> there are signs. Come on. We have some signs. What are there the are, signs, Tracy? Signs. Detail the signs. I think the basketball program is in a good state. I think it's sure. on the right track. Uh, yeah, I, I only I only wanted to claw my eyes out a few times during the game last night. Yeah, that game, that you know, since we're well, let's just finish that, this thought off. And you know, the football program, in my mind, and I was going to write a story about this. It, it all comes down to we had a lot of doubts about this football program. We we still do, obviously. But what really was the tipping point to make you a little bit more optimistic? And I know you might probably disagree with me. Yeah, you're using you're using you in a really interesting yeah, tense. Because correct, you yeah. still fundamentally believe that the whole way Chip Kelly goes about it is is destined to fail. But what tipped it over a little from? And it's still a question: Is that defensive scheme? I, before it was a bad defensive scheme. The defenses were bad. You didn't have the personnel to plug into it to make them good. Now you might think it's a pretty good defensive scheme that makes people better than they actually are, except then we doubted it in the last couple of games of the season. The defensive scheme is provocative. It gets the people going. Okay, so there you go. That's why uh, uh, I I think it's valid now for people to have optimism about Chip Kelly's program when before I didn't think it was. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying there's some validity validity to it but getting back to basketball in that game last night like i wrote that was the first game where i really came away that last few games or several i said there were there was mostly good play like there were some defensive breakdowns but the defense was decent and good offensive execution just occasionally you know not occasionally but they can't shoot but definitely, you would watch that game and go, hey, this is well-executed basketball. Last night was was really a bad game. It was a badly played game. I don't, I don't like the way ASU plays. I think that's a, just a horrible brand of basketball. And UCLA brought their horrible version of their brand of basketball. And it was just a bad game to watch. Um, Doesn't like it I, seem like only the worst UCLA games go to overtime? Or is that just like in, from our perspective of just like wanting just the game torture. to end so yeah. we can write about it and just get that done with that it just always seems particularly torturous when it's a horrible game that goes to overtime? Yeah, just to, just to torture us further and longer. 
the thing that's torture for me right now where, uh, you know, you have some breakdowns on defense, you've got some other things, okay, I'll get through it. I just can't watch this team shoot anymore. I just can't. I mean, I watch a lot of college basketball. Every team has some shooters on it. Every time I'm looking up, someone's burying threes. <laughs> this team just can't can't shoot, man. Uh, it, it really can't shoot. And that's where we're going to see the loss of Chris Smith the most. The guy was shooting 50% from three. Um, so I think it's, it, that's the painful I, part to me right now, Dave. Seriously, I can get through everything else. I don't think it's a, so. I don't think it's as simple as they can't shoot. I think missing Smith obviously hurts, but like Hawkes is hitting a lot better than he was last year. David Singleton is hitting a lot better than last year. I think what it really is is Tiger Campbell and Johnny Juzang can't shoot, and they take a whole shitload of threes. Not pardon, pardon my. I'd pardon say Chris, my language. Chris Singleton is about where he was. Hawkes has absolutely improved, but you still don't have confidence. Right. Every time he goes to take a three, you're going, ah, uh. I think it's more like, though, the two guys that you were actually counting on to hit threes this year were Johnny Juzang and Jake Kaiman, and they're both under, they're both under 27%. Yeah. That's freaky. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, they've taken 45 shots. It's not like it's a totally small sample at this point. They, they really have not hit at all. And, um, and you would just think one year, I mean, this is not a stretch. Increment, everyone will get incrementally better. You don't expect people to take a step back. I mean, right now, isn't Tiger Campbell worse than he was a year ago? So right now he's, he's at 24.1%, and last year he was at 273 So yes, he's, he is a worse shooter worse. this year. And his field goal percentage is worse. Everything's worse. It's just, how can you get worse? And it's not like... It's not like he doesn't have open looks. Tiger Campbell has more open threes because everyone's leaving him the hell open than he ever did. I, I don't. It's. I don't know. There's some mass, <laughs> you know, kind of collective bad shooting thing in the water at, you know. I'd be interested. I'd be interested to look at stats nationally on shooting. To see if um, all of college oh, basketball is just a little bit down because because of COVID nineteen and everything. Well, basically because a lot of them didn't have off season strength and conditioning. Because the thing that I would say, just like notably, and Chris Smith was among them before he went down. Nobody looks all that physically different this year, besides maybe Hawkes, who looks like he got thicker, but not necessarily more chiseled or anything. Everyone looks kind of the same. Like Tiger Campbell doesn't look noticeably stronger or bigger, and I thought that was one of his big. Jalen Hill looks a little bigger. A little but bit. But you're right. Yeah, you're yeah. right. But, you're but, right. but I, you can't go by Chris Smith because he's going to be this skinny in 10 years. Yeah, but I was expecting Tiger Campbell, especially when one of the obvious notes from last year was how he dealt with contact around the rim when he was going in on his layups. Like, he needed to be able to fight through that a little bit better. And I wonder, with a full off season of being able to, like, use the gym and the whole thing, if things might look a little bit different right now. Because, essentially, he's playing more minutes on the same body that was last year. And yeah. that body... Um, you know, I, I wouldn't expect it to be a great shooter playing that many minutes, you know, just from a, you know, usage standpoint, he's getting really exhausted. Um, so yeah. his free throws are like marginally improved from last year, um, but he, he looks like the same guy fundamentally. And that's just, you know, you, we're seeing the same Tiger Campbell from last year, except a better decision maker, which you would expect given his you know, having played so much last year and coming off of, you know, sitting out an entire year before that, um, his assist rate is up and his turnover rate is down. But other than that, he's basically the same player. 
Well, I mean, this is the Tiger Campbell we kind of, decision-making-wise, we saw in the second half of last season. For sure. So we, we all incrementally thought, you know, that he, he's going to improve his shooting. And his shooting's worse. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's tough for me because I've been a Tiger Campbell, you know, supporter and defender. Um, but this is, it's getting, it's getting, that game last night, that, that, that was tough. I mean, he had, he had some just complete open looks, especially in, it's, sometimes he takes some off balance runners and, you know, I, I get that, but some of some of his shots they were uncontested from within five feet. Yeah, and it was interesting because watching the game, like especially early on, I think it got much worse late. Um, but early on, w- my impression of the entire team was that they were completely checked out, except for maybe Campbell. Like I thought he was actually taking more on himself because the other guys looked so passive. That's like, funny because I did. thought he was spaced out defensively. Uh, there were so many mental lapses for him on defense where he let guys just go by him or he was he was late to move or switch. But so maybe it's just thought. that we were focusing on different players because I was watching Jaime during yeah. this game and I'm like, I have never seen him play a game like this where no, he's just, team, just the floating like, the entire time. The whole team looked like he was asleep and didn't want to be there Yeah, to me. Yeah. Uh, but it was, I mean, it was a miserable game. Uh, uh, and I think without... You know, Cody Riley, I thought, did exactly what he needed to do, converting against that kind of small and undermanned interior. Um, and then David Singleton came in and, um, you know, kind of did did what he does, and his effort level is always pretty consistent. So when he came in, you know, his consistent effort level of trying uh, looked like he was uh, an Energizer Bunny in this one uh, because everyone else was, you know, in varying levels of not trying very hard. So now let's go by let's go by what we know now, and let's take last season and all the data we have, and because now we've got enough data to to have make some conclusions. David Singleton is the best shooter on this team. I don't care who's shooting in practice. Well, I it it doesn't work that way, and God, there are so many coaches that fall into that. That you know this guy's shooting really well in practice, and it's just a matter until it translates to the games. Doesn't matter. David Singleton is the best shooter on the team. He was averaging seven minutes a game for the last four games before last night. That's just that. And I, it's you brought this up before. The season turned last year on a few things, but it really turned when David Singleton got more minutes. He started, and it just he he was just another calming presence on the court where who didn't make a lot of mistakes, and he shot the ball pretty well. That helped to really turn around the season. And Mick Cronin seems to have, and I understand, he seems to have misplaced him this year and not appreciate some of the things he does and some of the probably the things that don't show up in a stat sheet, too. And has been a little bit starry-eyed, I think, over Johnny Juzang because Johnny Juzang looks like he should be a scorer. He's got a nice stroke. He pulls up. It's a quick release. Everything he does looks like he should be a scorer. But Except the for ball, where the ball goes. The ball ain't going in. And <laughs> David Singleton's got that funky shot that shouldn't go in. And I understand it, but we've got data now to go on. And we didn't. We, we go by Johnny Juzang last year. He's shooting about the same he was, you know, in Kentucky last year. You know, a little worse at three, so maybe he's in, you know, he's in a slump. But watching him play defense last night, 
he had a bad defensive game. Yeah. Uh, as most of them did. But and, and it was encouraging to me when I looked at when I looked at the minutes and I saw that Singleton had played he played like 30 minutes and I think uh Juzang only played like 23. Yeah. So Cronin made the choice during that game that he had to go with the guy who was hot and uh, we'll see if moving forward if this increases David Singleton's minutes and reduces Juzang's but the other one that I know you want to talk about oh, yeah. is the use of Jalen Hill. Well, and I do want to I want to talk about this first in the context of um just so first it's not like a it's not just that David Singleton was inserted last year it was also who he replaced. Prince <laughs> Ali was the yeah. was the real problem last year replacing him even if you even if you are of the opinion that David Singleton is a non-entity which I think a, a fair amount of people on the board are I am not but even if you think okay he doesn't actually do much when he's out there that's still better than t- doing negative things um and I think for right now and I'm not saying this is a permanent thing and I'm not trying to compare him to Ali because there's still I think quite a bit of upside there with Johnny Juzang that there wasn't with Ali particularly by his senior year but Johnny Juzang has the statistical profile right now of Prince Ali. Um, and so yeah. you replace him with, even again, if you say Singleton is a zero, you're placing him with a zero is probably an improvement. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is um, Mick Cronin, it's interesting because he talks about a few different things that he prioritizes in terms of the team dynamic. He really wants offensive rebounding. He really wants deflections and block shots. And he really wants guys to not turn the ball over. You've got a guy in Singleton who doesn't turn the ball over among your ball handlers. Um, he just made a habit of it throughout his career. I think this year it's a little bit up, but throughout his career he's, he's not turned the ball over. And then you've got a guy in Jalen Hill who offensive rebounds at a better rate than anybody else on the team. And he blocks shots at a way better rate than anybody else on the team. Because and no he, one else does, but yeah. Yeah, and he also <laughs> plays some good deflecting defense. I mean, last year he yeah. had, I think his steal rate was close to 2%. Um, and Cody Riley is starting over him and playing more minutes. Um, and you've got uh, Johnny Juzang, who does very little of the, the really, you know, great offensive things that uh, Mick Cronin wants. You've got him starting over David Singleton, who historically doesn't turn the ball over very much. So it's interesting. It's I wonder if it's falling prey to some of the you know, that talent that you can get at UCLA, some of the shot-making talent and maybe losing sight of some other things. But anyway, yes, Jalen Hill. So even with Cody Riley scoring at the level he did yesterday, it's you've really got to look at the entire complexion of what UCLA is trying to do and what they're trying to do defensively. With Cody Riley in the game, even when he is playing well defensively, he is not providing any rim protection whatsoever. He doesn't block shots. You cannot funnel ball ball handlers into him. You can't do any of that stuff. When he's in the game, it really does become a thing where they just have to hope that guys don't beat anybody up off the dribble because there's not going to be any help to actually block a shot. With Jalen Hill in there, you can kind of switch that a little bit. He can play down low and block shots. He can also guard guys on the perimeter better than Cody Riley ever will be able to. And Riley hasn't been horrible at that, actually. He's been trying really hard, but he's not hill by any stretch of the imagination and then offensively while cody riley has great low post moves can convert down in the low post really really well he doesn't do the other stuff quite as well he does an offensive rebound and he doesn't force free throws nearly as well as jalen hill does jalen hill is i think he's averaging 
Yeah, he's he's averaging almost a free throw per shot attempt. He's at 91%. That means, so on 91% of his two-point shot attempts, he's getting a free throw from it. Um, that's super elite. That's in the top probably 20 nationally. And um, what's he shooting from the line? He's at 61%. And he was better last year. Yeah, so and, he's a little bit, and it's yeah. been and it's been picking up basically since the beginning part of the year. But that's yeah. a big quality. Like it's a really important one because it's twofold. It both puts fouls on other teams' post players more than likely, and it you know generates free shots at the hoop. Um, those qualities make it so that it's 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 to the point where it's kind of. Um, it, unless Riley keeps it up at this level, which I don't know that he's going to do because I think ASU is a very favorable matchup. I don't think he's going to be scoring 20 plus points a game. I just, unless he's, it was just, it was his career high. Yeah. I mean, but, <laughs> but like, yeah. but even if you're saying, okay, he's broken through now and he's going to start scoring, he really would have to keep it up at that level to make it justifiable to play him uh, significantly more than Hill. Yeah, I, I, he's not going to keep it up at that level. That I mean, that that was the high end because he was playing against a team that you know he ended up he, he had no one to defend him. Right. So, and that's yeah. not to say that that Riley's um, uh, he's an important piece of this team, and you've got to find a way to get him fifteen to twenty yourself. But I think Hill, you've got to be penciling him in for first. I would start him. I just I think that's the part that's kind of from an optics standpoint, it's just kind of getting me. And I wonder if it's getting him too, because frankly, like I have not seen the same energy level for him the last three games that there was maybe before that. And that's a mental thing, you know, that's, you know, you got to fight through these things, but I wonder if maybe that's playing a role. You know, he's, he's had his role, I think a little bit marginalized compared to last year. He's playing five fewer minutes per game. And, um, now this is maybe me being a little sensitive to my boy Jalen Hill, but it seems like he's getting a quicker hook when he makes a mistake, um, almost akin to uh, you know one of, like Jalen Clark. It seems like Jalen Hill missed a bo- box out on a free throw and he gets yanked. Um, well, here, here's the other thing too, which is a little stunning if you look at this. I mean, if you think about the two of them, you're all well. Cody Riley is the scorer; he's the one that's scoring. Jalen Hill doesn't score that much. That's what Cody Riley does. Cody Riley uh, is averaging 22 minutes a game. He's he's averaging 10.2 points a game. Jalen Hill is averaging 19, let's say 20 minutes, right? So a full two minutes less. And he's averaging 8.4 points. He's only averaging 1.8 points less than than Cody Riley per game. Yeah. That, that that would not be your impression. You would. It kind of feels like Cody Riley's averaging like fourteen and Jalen Hill six, but it's not. There isn't that big of a difference there compared to everything else that Jalen Hill brings to the court. But it it also comes back to the same thing. And I know I've been sounding this, but they're going to have to play together. <laughs> I really think there's going to be at least some minutes during the game where you need to get your most effective players on the court, and that's them. Um, sharing 40 minutes between the two of them, just it, I, I understand the idea, but that's if you're getting everything else from every, you're getting something really significant from every other position, and those two aren't probably among your top five guys in the team, and, and they are right now in many ways. 
I just think there's got to be some moments where they where they play together. And I think what's happening is I know how all this works. I bet they don't really have a two-post offense installed that much. Yeah, right? no, they're definitely doing the four-out thing, um, yeah. which I, I, I completely understand it because they only have essentially two posts that they're willing to play. And so I think he's thinking, well, we don't want to get into a habit of playing them together because what if we end up in foul trouble and we have to play with, especially now with Chris Smith out, um, it would just be Hawkes at the five and then... You know. I'm talking like for six, seven minutes during the course of 40 minutes that these two play together. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I'd am i be intrigued by it. I wonder if, because uh, that would involve like doing a little bit more high-low stuff than I think they've done um, offensively. Um, but yeah, I'd be willing to try it, especially as they work for lineups that make sense without Chris Smith in the game. Um but my thing is, even if throwing out the possibility of a two-post offense, then minutes need to flip. I mean, even if you want to say Cody Riley's been effective enough to play whatever Jalen Hill's playing right now, 18 or 19 a game, flip the two. Like, Hill should be starting. He should be keying the defense from the start of the game. How many times do we have to watch a team just go on an immediate run to start a game? That's It, it feels like that's been the narrative every single game. And I wonder if it's just not starting with a considerable amount of um, but I, defensive I, 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 presence. Yeah, that I think I think you make a point about starting. I think that's very valid because you need you need a defensive presence. You need to start that. And first off, just from the I know this is all psychological, but Cody Riley, now with Chris Smith without the jump ball, Cody Riley can't win a jump. You already feel it sends a message to the other team like that's the best guy they got at the jump. We've got this when it comes to athleticism on this team as opposed to you start with Jalen Hill. You start with a defensive presence, shot blocking, rim protector. It just sends a message. It, it, it sends a psychological – it registers psychologically. But in the long run, in the course of a game, you're talking about flipping it. It's only two minutes, Dave. I mean, two minutes. That's the only difference right now. So is that really going to be that significant? Both of them need to play more, and especially Jalen Hill. And the only way he's going to play more, significantly more – is if you cut Cody Riley to about 15 minutes a game, which is not going to happen, or they play together. Yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, I think it's going to have to happen at least a couple of minutes a game. Um, I know they're going to they'll probably resist that for a while, but I think it'll have to happen. Um, but I, I, I guess just putting it strongly, I'd be fine with that. If you want to cut yeah. Cody Riley to 14 or 15 minutes a game and put Hill oh, in there wow. for 25, like I think that. I think it will improve the team. Will it improve the offense? Eh. But I think it will improve the play of the team. I think you'll get a much more engaged Jalen Hill. Because, okay, if you want to critique Hill for maybe not being as engaged the last three games, that's perfectly fine and valid. But the situation is you're going to need Jalen Hill if you make a run. So if he's the type who's going, and I'm not even saying he is, but if you're of the opinion that he's pouting or whatever right now, okay, make him not pout anymore. Play him 25 minutes a game because he's shown he showed last year um, in 24 minutes a game that he can play at a high level um, doing that and be a key yeah. defensive player. So just do it again. And, and Cody and, and, Riley played well in a bench role last year. So do it again. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, here's the other thing, too. I mean, I know, uh, you know, I'm sure Mick Cronin is spending a lot of time on defense and getting these guys to be better individual defensive players, just not team defense but individual players and you know technically and fundamentally learning how better to stay in front of 
there, man. But uh, there's only so much you can do because these just aren't good defensive individual players. Who's good on defense on this team? Really? I mean, we always point to Jules Bernard, and he might be the best, but he's not great. There isn't anyone who's really, really good. No, uh, there's, there's, there's only so much you can do with these guys on defense at this point. Uh, and I don't, I wouldn't, are they optimizing how good they can be? No, they can be a little bit better, but I don't know how much more you can squeeze out of them. Maybe they can be better as a team defensively because there are some breakdowns in focus, but that's about focus. That's not, you know, I, I agree with Mick's theory that it's all about staying in front of the ball, but, and you can improve them with a little bit of, of technique, but these guys ain't getting much better. Where, who's going to get better? I mean, Jalen Clark, the freshman, is the guy who has the, the, the real upside. This is a string of not good defensive players. Yeah. Um, and when we talk about athleticism, people don't get this. People look at athleticism mostly as being able to jump and dunk. The thing which you use more in basketball is just being able it's, – it's being able to move your feet and stay in front of the ball. And it's also – there's a physicality to it. I mean – who on this team will put their chest in someone? You know, it. there's a lot of finesse going on, too. They're, these just aren't good defensive players. And it goes back to what my story was. Uh, this It's not a very talented team. They just aren't. There are so many holes in their games. And just not, I wrote that it's not just holes, but it's consistency of play. But there are a lot of holes, too. That These guys just collect i mean individually are not that good so collectively they have a ceiling well i mean <laughs> and think it's about a it pretty way. limited ceiling and there just isn't that much talent and i gotta give mccronin a lot of credit i mean you look up and they're eight and two and they're four four and zero in the pac 12 and in first place i mean if you watch them play and we showed you a tape of them over the last four or five games and you'd say where are they in the pac 12 you'd say fifth I mean, they're in first place and they're four and up. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, think about it this way: um, their their starting group right now is Jules Bernard, a junior; Jaime Hawkins, a sophomore. Who um, I know it's UCLA, and everyone can make silly decisions. He's he's not leaving. Uh, Tiger Campbell, who's a third year sophomore; uh, Cody Riley, who's a fourth year junior. Um, and who else is starting? That's it. Um, and then the main rotation is Jalen Hill, fourth year junior. Uh, David Singleton, a third year. Um, this isn't uh, what I'm saying is it's an obviously not very talented team because none of these guys are <laughs> none of these guys are true freshmen. None of these guys are five star freshmen. And right? you don't look at anyone and say, "Wow, that's a you know that's a." Oh, pro. And, and Johnny Juzang, who's a sophomore bounce, who's bounced out of uh, Kentucky because he wasn't good enough to play there. Um, none of these guys are. One and Duns or two and Duns, and I know Johnny Juzang or probably has ambitions pros, as well. Even even no, after four years. Well, I think if you if you want to tell me that um, Jaime Hawkes is going to be a pro after his senior year because he's you know turned himself into one of those like you know Big Ten All Stars who scores eighteen points a game and pulls down ten rebounds, fine. Okay, right, fine. but not not a slam dunk. No, it's, of course not. There's, there's I, I a think, lot that has to happen. I think the guys who have potential upside. So Jalen Hill, if he ever gets like gets it together offensively where it doesn't look like something you're cringing about when he gets it in the low post, maybe. 
Uh, Jalen Clark, I, I think that's an that, that's an obvious intriguing piece, um, just from an athletic standpoint. But other than that, I mean, Chris Smith. I mean, before he went down, sure he'll play in the NBA. I mean, at the very least, he'll play a year or two. I'm but, skeptical there too, but yeah. But but if you took away the ACL, like, will he you know play a few minutes in the NBA for sure? Um, like, I'll accept that as a reasonable thing to say. Um, but no, other than that, like, I have no idea. Like, this is not a super talented team. I do think it's talented enough to look better than this, though, especially given what we saw over the back half of last year. It does feel like, I don't know if it's um, adding a piece into the group in, essentially in Johnny Juzang, um, and that's no knock on Juzang. It's, you know, they got to get used to that when you add when you go college basketball year to year, you're going to be adding guys and subtracting guys year to year, and you've got to maintain the core ethos. Um, but I don't know if it was adding him, but it feels like they're relearning a lot of the thing, a lot of the hard lessons they learned last year and that made them more cohesive as a group. They're having to relearn all of that stuff again, and it seems like the coaching staff is also relearning some of these things because it feels yeah. like they're making some of the similar, I won't call them mistakes, but they're making some of the similar decisions that led them to looking not so great in mid-January. And the good news yeah. is they don't look anywhere near as bad as they did at the beginning of last year. The, the you know, area for growth is that they don't look consistently as good as they did at the end of last year. They can get there, but I think it's going to require some personnel changes, maybe, but fundamentally they're going to have to get these guys to buy in um, for longer periods of time during these games because it's just, it doesn't seem like it's clicking defensively with these guys not being great individual defenders, the team defense does not seem like it's clicking nearly as well. Have you watched, you've watched some of the PAC 12, uh, you go from team to team. SC has how many, I mean, guys that jump off the page at you jump off the screen as NBA guys, uh, Oregon. Uh, I mean, AS, uh, there, there are some Arizona, there are some guys that just look like, they they look like more pros than anyone on UCLA, and it's not just a matter that I've watched UCLA so much. <laughs> it's just it's it's obviously clear. Yeah, um, there's no there's not a lot of obvious pro talent on this team, um, and that's why you know it's a it's a credit to Cronin and staff that they've gotten them to eight and two right now. But I don't want to make that just a pure excuse because even with no individual talent. These guys are all, I would say, there's a there's a strong depth of pretty good. There's a strong depth of guys who are like, yeah, these are these are going to be good college players. Um, and they just, they're good college players who we saw perform better last year. I mean, this entire team was back, basically. Um, so I, I don't think, I think you can hold, you know, the two thoughts within your mind that, no, there's not an obvious NBA talent on this team. And also, they should be playing better than they are right now. And you know what? Here's the thing, too. This is really funny because you talk about player development and who gets better. And so many fans always put that on the coach in football and in basketball. And I understand that. And to some degree, it is about player development from, a you know, whether you judge a coach, whether he's developing players. But in a lot of ways, you know, in college, they just don't get that much time with them in a, in a normal year. So much player development is really dependent on the player, how much time he puts in in the offseason, how he changes his body, how much he works on his skills, um, more so than the coach developing the player. 
And it was especially difficult this year because they didn't get a lot of off-season workouts because of COVID-19. So you look at this, you look at this team, who's gotten better from last year? Um, I would say Co- Cody Riley is marginally improved from where he was even at the end of last year. Um, okay. Jules Bernard. Jules Bernard is better. Um, Jaime's a bit, a little better probably, shooting eh, the ball a little bit better. He's a little bit better shooting-wise, but I would say his energy level is down. Uh, his, okay, his, so re- his rebound rate is down. Chris his, Smith his was not as good as he was toward the end of last year. Yeah, I mean, again, it's sort of the same thing as Hawkes. I think he got better shooting. I think that was about it, though. Um, Jake Kyman is not as good as he was last year. I don't think Tiger Campbell is as good as he was last year. Yeah, I, I, I would know. say it's it's basically Riley got a little bit better, and then I think Jules Bernard um, took a leap. Yeah, I think Jules Bernard, you could make an argument that he's the reason they're, they're still, you know, leading the Pac-12. Um, his surge over the yeah. last, whatever it is, five, six games – um, it's it's kind of made up for some real lapses from other guys. Um, he's been, I'd say, their 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 best two way guy this year. Um, just his ability and, to play under control offensively, and then also, um, commit to playing defense at the very least. And I got to throw in that David Singleton is is incrementally better. It's he hard to body, know because his it's, it's, body's better. He's a little bit more confident taking the ball off the dribble. Uh, I. He's a little. He's a little better. I don't know if he's being utilized as well as he, as the incrementally improved Singleton should be. But that's what I'm saying. There isn't. There isn't a lot of improvement from these guys, and I don't know if that's a reflection on them on how much they worked in the off season, or it's a reflection on you know it was a COVID nineteen offseason and they didn't get a lot of time not only did they not get time with the coaches they didn't get time themselves to work out um but that's you know that's that's college basketball wide everyone was under the same restrictions um but I, i would have expected some guys to get a little bit better and and actually i guess really what's kind of crazy are the guys who have regressed, um, like like Jake Hyman? If he's shooting forty percent like that from three, like he did last year, seriously, some of the some of these games are different. <laughs> yeah, completely different. I mean, remember what he did at Washington <laughs> yeah. last year? I mean, we're still waiting for that. And he took some he took some pretty pretty bad shots last year and made them and. He's got the equivalent, you know, amount of good looks this year, and he's not making them. So, I don't know. God, that's a hard one. You, you know, you give him maybe he's down in minutes, like, but not that much. A minute and a half, two minutes a game compared to last season, and maybe he doesn't have confidence because of that. But, yeah, just a few guys that have fallen off. The I one think. thing I would say about Kaiman um, is – there, there may be a streaky element to him um, that you just don't see because you, we've only watched one season of his play. Um, but if you look at the actual numbers from last year, um, he wasn't good until the Washington game on January 2nd. Then he went off. Then he did it again, sort of, against Washington State, scored another eight points. And then he was really kind of silent for a while, and then he went off again against Oregon. 
And then he was really kind of silent for a while. And then he went off again against Colorado and ASU and then Arizona. Um, so how many times during the season when you say he went off? Five? Uh, so there were uh, one, two, three, four games where he scored uh, double digits. Okay, we're waiting on one of those. <laughs> yeah, but the, the first one I'm yeah. saying came last year on January 2nd. Um, okay. So it might just be that he's a little bit streaky. And, um, you know, we've got memories of him shooting the lights out during conference play last year that don't necessarily bear out over the course of an entire season. But he does have to start hitting some. I'm going to take this as almost optimism from you, Dave. Yeah, well, I don't think he's going to – I don't think he suddenly became an awful shooter overnight. Um, Yeah. You know, the thing is we've never seen Johnny Juzang shoot well at the college level. I mean, he wasn't – and again, it was low usage last year at Kentucky, but he wasn't shooting well, and he hasn't been shooting well at UCLA. We just saw Jake Kaiman hitting last year um, yeah. at 40% and 42% in conference play last year. So it's not too much of a stretch to think that he can do that again, um, but he does have to start doing it. Um, but I think Cronin used him well last year in that he rode him when he was hot, and when he wasn't, he didn't play much. Um and I think that's just kind of the way you got to do it again, which is, okay, if he's hitting it, yeah, play, play him 25 minutes. And if, if his first few, few shots don't go in, then you can't play him. Um, and I think that's how he used him last year and probably how he's going to use him this year. It's just he hasn't hit. Yeah. Um, I think at this point, I think we're pretty spot on about Singleton and Hill I mean, Singleton has proven he's shooting 45%. He's proven he's the best shooter on the team. He's got to get more. He just plainly has to get more shots. <laughs> you know, he, he's just not taking enough threes at this point. He's played in how many games? Ten. He's only taken, yeah, 10. And he's taken four, uh, how many has he taken? 3.1 a game. Yeah, that's just not enough. That's not what your shooter should be doing. He should be taking upwards of six to eight. Well, especially so, you've got you've got Juzang who's taken I think he's taking like four and a half a game, yeah, right now. Which again, you know, I, I I'm all for guys shooting them where, their way out of slumps, but this is a two season slump now. Yeah, yeah. So, we'll see. So we will see. But see when when you have people that are analyzing things and then they say we'll see what we're basically kind of coming to the conclusion is everything we just said is just moot because we're just we just gotta wait to see what happens yeah no we're just we're just spitting in the wind like we're (laughs) i mean there's there's guys everything we just said is just useless it's just useless speculation and brain masturbation i mean you're talking to a bunch of guys who hang out on a message board Come on, what is there? What is life really? But a bunch of useless speculation and brain uh, masturbation. Uh, okay, fine, fine. All right. Uh, uh, so that's that's kind of uh, basketball this year. Uh, we did want to touch on the Chris Smith situation for potentially next year because I think Mick Cronin was pretty hard and fast about it um, in his uh, thing right after Smith went down, and you know. I think there's probably some credence to it. And also he's trying to be supportive of his guy and, you know, start talking about him as an NBA prospect because that's what coaches should do. Absolutely. Um, And so, you know, he's talking him up and saying, we're going to get him ready. But 
from Chris Smith's standpoint, it's going to be, I think, again, an interesting and extremely tough decision for him uh, heading into potentially next season. Well, I mean, I think there were some guys on our forum that gave up that talked about instances where uh, a pro prospect had a season ending injury as a senior and then still went in the draft and, and got drafted. But I, you know, all those, all those situations are not equal. And he was, he was a borderline second rounder after coming off a really a pretty good year at the end of last year. And then his first, however many games he played really added some, you know, he had to say it was a little suspect with what he put on the put on tape so far this year. And and are you going and then you really don't know the severity of the knee injury. It's usually I mean, a quick recovery for an ACL is eight months. Yeah, I don't know. There's a there's a there are a lot of unknowns right there. And I think you're right. Mick was doing his support and saying, you know, he's not coming back. Um, but I think we have to seriously consider that he will. Um, he's young for his age, for his class. Uh, if there's something that could really benefit him, it's it's more maturity for him to grow, just grow into being a man, for lack of another way of saying it, where he's going to step up and be the man on, on the court. Um, you know, I had a brain fart, too, when people were talking about when it came to what that would do to scholarships. I forgot, you know, somehow. God, it's this whole thing with the added year of eligibility just can make you. We were talking about brain masturbation, and this is a brain cloud. Um, he's just what would be a super senior. So he's added in. So he doesn't even affect. He doesn't affect the scholarship count. What it would affect, though, is playing time. Um, we've seen how Johnny Juzang's addition here has taken away some minutes from Chris Singleton. And, you know, you add Chris Smith to this and then you throw in Peyton Watson and we'll just have to say Will McClendon. And then you have a second year Jalen Clark who's going to need some minutes. Um, so on one hand, you'd really like to have Chris Smith back if he's healthy and he's ready to contribute and a year older. But dang, he's he's going to pay 28 play 28 minutes a game and he's going to cut into some of these other minutes for other players. I don't know. That's, that's tough at this point. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think you always want to have him back, but I could see the other side. Yeah. I, I can to an extent. I also think you would take him back in a heartbeat. Um, Cause ultimately there's a few different factors. Um, first from Chris Smith's angle, like what is he in the NBA right now? And what do they like him as? I think it would have to be like three and D but has he really shown the D and uh, has he really shown the three for long enough that you feel confident that he's going to be a three pointer, like, you know, hit him at 38 plus percent a game. I don't know. Um, I think you'd feel pretty, pretty good about it, but not perfect. Um, but then from the team angle, I think you would take him back because there's a few different things you don't know. Um, how many? Well, you're absolutely, let's just establish this. They're absolutely taking him back. Totally. It's a matter of whether we think it would, in the long run, is still going. It, we're just saying it's going to bring up some issues. I think it, I in, think it brings up it brings up potential issues. A lot of which would get ironed out in the next eight months. Because look, right now UCLA has a little bit of a logjam. I mean, we've spent the previous forty minutes kind of talking about it, but the David Singleton versus Johnny Juzang thing 
that's not just going to be resolved this year because one of those guys is a sophomore and the other one's a junior. Then you've got Jake Kaiman, who's a sophomore. Um, these guys, maybe they love being at UCLA or maybe they want to play basketball. Um, but I could, you could easily see a scenario where one or two of the guys who are currently on the roster outside of Chris Smith decide, hey, man, I, I want to go start somewhere. Um, so yeah. you could see That's that. That's true. Um, That's true. And so then you want Chris Smith back, even though it's going to take starting minutes away from potentially somebody who was going to start, um, because that's another body in your rotation who you know can play. Um, and you made a really good point before we started, actually turned on the tape. Um, it might be Chris Smith needs to just play some more four. Yeah, because this year, what how it's actually shaken out is that Hawkes has been the four, Um in as much as they've even had one. I mean, it's, again, been very four out, but a lot of times he's the one guarding a four. Um, but Chris Smith might have to finally put a little bit more weight on that frame and actually play some four. Um, you know, my my ideal world vision of him this season was as like a souped-up uh, senior year Dijon Thompson who was playing that face-up four role, um, and he could do that. And if he did that, especially with one or both of Jalen Hill or Cody Riley moving on after this year... Um, that you know takes a little bit pressure off of getting say they miss on another post this year and it has to be whatever Mac Etienne as the starting five and then basically no one else behind him that would take a little bit of pressure off because Chris Smith's a decent defensive rebounder and um if he's beefed up a little bit maybe can actually do some work guarding fours um but I think that's if if you're trying to play him alongside Peyton Watson I think that's the only way it works um, yeah is if, he's, if he's playing the four um and I think that's doable for him from a skill set standpoint because, again, it doesn't need to be anything different from essentially what Dijon Thompson was doing as a senior in 2005. Um, you know, he's a face-up guy. He's still hitting threes and doing the whole thing, but he just has to get down and dirty a little bit more on defense. And that's a mentality shift, but it was a mentality shift for Thompson too. And as a senior, he was ready to do it. And maybe uh, for Smith, he'll be ready too, especially after the ACL. Maybe it diminishes... Um, a little bit of his mobility, at least for a short period of time. You know, I, I could see a lot of factors coming together for him to want to do that, again, in this weird speculative world where he comes back next year. Yeah, and it, and it also brings up, and it's related, it brings up some some personnel issues, too, um, for next year, which, you know, we always want to talk about. We always talk about the next year. It's so much more fun most of the time. Um you know, UCLA some has, if we're talking holes, has some holes in its in its personnel. I mean, we've heard Jalen Hill and Cody Riley more than likely will move on from the season. The natural response is why, where are they going? That doesn't matter, really. It's it's just like, do they want to still be in school? Do they want to go to class? I, I mean, this is what we're hearing, and you just are going to have to trust me on this one. Um, if one of them returned, just one, that would be great. That would be you know that would solve some per, uh, some personnel holes for next season, but there's some other. I mean, if they both leave, what are you looking at as a post? You've got Mac Etienne, who's really a true freshman, uh, Ken Nuuba, who hasn't shown that he can play at this level, even though there are some people close to the program who think he can. It's just maybe Cronin doesn't have enough confidence in him, Un, you know. But that's complete uncertainty. So the post is a question, the, the post position. Um, and then again, you're overloaded with wings, just just overloaded. 
And UCLA needs a, a guy who can handle the ball and bring the ball up and basically a scoring combo guard. Someone who can handle the ball, give Tyler, Tiger Campbell a big rest at point guard, but then just shoot the ball and, and put it in the basket. But they might not have, if, if these guys all return, they won't have the scholarships for it. And even if Jalen Hill and Cody Riley leave, I mean, wouldn't you need a post before you need that backup or that combo guard? So yeah, there are absolutely. some challenges here, and we're not going to know. We It's a very unusual year, obviously. Usually we can say, well, these are the guys who are left out there in the 2021 class. Who they We've seen them 50 times, and UCLA's got this guy at the top of their board. No, we can't do that because the dead period has been going on for what seems like eight years. And then you've got the transfer portal, and that that's what you would seem, would seem to think would be the first go-to option here to fill some holes. And come on, we obviously we don't know who's going to end up in that transfer portal. So, dang, this is there's a there's so much unknown. And once again, Dave, we're just talking and speculating about things that we don't know. And you should say, we'll see. We will see. <laughs> we will see. We will definitely see over the coming weeks and months. Um, if you yeah. could have one of Jalen Hill, I know you're going to say, one of Jalen Hill and Cody Riley return for next year, who would you have return? Jalen Hill, which is why yep. I would also be prioritizing playing him right now, especially with, again, it's it's my eyeballs and nothing else. Like, it's just pure, but he does look a little bit, I don't know, I wouldn't say disgruntled, but he does look a little bit less checked in over the last few games. I would make sure to get him checked in because I think of the two from like the rumblings we've heard over the years, Cody Riley has always been the one who's like seemingly wanted to get out of school as quickly as possible. Um, Cause we, do you remember we heard rumblings after I think his first year where he was yeah. like, I, I want out. Um, not from like a, you know, uh, hating the team or whatever, hating playing basketball. Just like, it's not, it's not for him. Some, for some guys yeah. it just isn't for them. Um, the college. But I think you're right about Jalen Hill. I, when he sits for usually like the first seven minutes, there have been times when he hasn't come in until the 13 minute mark. And it, and he was a guy who started 25 games last year. Like yeah. It's not as if he was in a backup role last year. He was the starter and he was playing more minutes than Riley. Um, and it's just, this is a switch. It's a definite move backwards for him. And I'm, again, there's got to be something else playing into it because I'm finding it kind of inexplicable from a play on the court standpoint. And a, and a Mick Cronin philosophy standpoint. Yeah, that's the part that I'm like, that's the well, part. Hill seems to be even embracing those roles perhaps a little bit more than he was last year. Like, his offensive rebounding rate is a little bit higher. Um, and it just, it doesn't, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I would be I would be prioritizing him because of the two, I, maybe you can, you can win him over to come back for another year and say, hey, we're going to feature you and make you, you know, a, uh, an NBA player. I think um, that's a more believable thing to say to him than you could say to Riley. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, it, go ahead. No, it's just, it's really, it's, there's a lot of interesting things to consider here. There's on one hand, there's a lot of things that are encouraging, but there's a lot of things that are, are, are pretty worrisome too. I really, what would make me feel a lot better is at some point I could watch Mac Eddie and actually play. In, in 
and he gave us something All right, to let's, feel let's confident do that. about. Let's do that, Tracy. Uh, I'm not even going to say, uh, do you think Mac Eddian is going to play minutes this year? What game do you think he plays his first minutes in this year? Uh, against Washington. <laughs> Which time? Uh, in Poly. So two weeks. Yeah. That's about right. Maybe he'll know what he's doing. Oh, a week. Sorry, a week from now. Oh, it is a week. Okay. Yeah. Have um, you watched Washington play? Yeah, they're really bad, so I think it would make wow, sense. Wow, they're so bad. Man. Yeah, I'll say I'll, – I'll, I'm going to join you there. I think next weekend against Washington State or Washington, even if UCLA shows up completely asleep, they are so much worse than ASU that it should be enough of a laugher that Mac Eddian gets his first minutes. You'd, you'd have to think. I, I can't see any other game where I think they might be up by double digits any point in the game. Well, and, and that'll be two weeks. I mean, he'll have had two weeks full of practice at that point, too. Yeah. So that makes sense. I mean, Oregon State, maybe? Yeah, I think that would be the next the next real opportunity, unless they really got silly against Cal um, on the road. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think Oregon State at home, that would also make some sense, and that would give them a full month of getting acclimated. Um, you know what I'd actually like to see, too? Because, I mean, Ebian is was a highly regarded r- recruit. He had offers, and toward the end, there were a lot of even blue bloods who were starting to get interested. And to his credit, he stayed with the guys, with the schools that were recruiting him. I'd really like to see Nawuba get in there and pro- provide some good minutes. That would make me feel even better. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, that would be nice. That would uh, I think that would assuage a lot of our concerns. And I do want to say, like, Look, I mean, we're talking about concerns, and it's been, I think, I I wouldn't say this is a negative podcast, but we are, you know, kind of talking about some things that have not gone so well and what we're talking about improving. Um, I can't imagine having this conversation about an Alford team. Like, just talking about, like, the nuances of whether this guy should be getting 24 minutes or that guy should be getting to 18 or whatever, because it just never got to that level. It was just, oh, yeah, none of these guys are trying hard and they're not playing any defense and they all, uh, and there's no way to move around these deck chairs properly to actually fix the dynamic. It's exactly what I was going to say. We were moving around deck chairs here. We are nitpicking an eight and two team. That's in the first, first place of the pac 12. Yeah. But this is how it, and this is when it feels, you know, it feels better watching UCLA basketball because we can say, Oh my God, that game last night was absolutely dreadful. And they beat a team in the Ken Palm top 60, um, you know, on the road. Okay. It, It was dreadful for sure. But also, um, they still held ASU, what, under, what was it, in regulation? It was under 70? I mean, it's just, it's a different thing we're watching now. Um, And, yeah, Yeah. we're still going to nitpick it because, hell, that's what we do here. Um, But it's it's an obviously much better thing. No, it was was a categorical categorical (laughs) dismissal of the entire thing that was going on. Yeah, um, yeah. But now we can actually, instead of like literally leading off every single story after, I remember people just getting tired of it. And I'm like, look, it's what we're going to talk about because it's what it is. But leading off every single story with, yeah, the effort level wasn't good today. Well, yeah. Because it, fu- it, because it fundamentally wasn't. Like it just wasn't. Yeah. Um, and- I mean, there have been times in this season, and I don't think this team has played overall really, really well, but there have been long stretches in games where I. I'm watching and saying, okay, this is kind of a pleasure to watch. Yeah, well, they can't yeah. Sh- they can't shoot, but their defense is solid and they're executing really well on offense. This is a pleasure to watch. I almost I with Alford, 
the defense was almost always abysmal to where it made it unwatchable. And then the offense so often is all, uh, you know, you just keep doing good shot, bad shot, good shot, bad shot. You'd say bad shot, bad shot, bad shot, bad yeah. shot. And they, they, the reason they stayed in the game is they made bad shots. <laughs> yeah, or they didn't, but they stayed or in the game didn't. because, you know, they had a certain name. Um, yeah. <laughs> see, I'm never going to let it go. Uh-uh. Um, but no, like this season, even the, the Ohio State loss – I mean, for whatever, 36 minutes of that game, it was an absolute pleasure to watch, and then they just got beat up at the end. Absolutely. Um, But there were a lot of games like that, even in this year, even in this year where they're not necessarily playing up to the level that we thought they might at the beginning of the year, there's still, like, several games where you're like, wow, I had a lot of fun watching that basketball game. Well, let's end end our basketball discussion on this, and you, you kind of touched on it. When would you say last season is when they really started to turn it around they, they had already started to turn it around, and they were starting to really play well. Would you say late January? Mid-January. So it was like Jan- January. So they, they they beat Cal where they held them to 40, which was, I thought, an interesting sign. And then the real surge started uh, January 30th against Colorado. Okay, so January – let's say the sur- – so they're still getting better. And then January 30th is when the surge started. So we're three weeks away, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, we got plenty of time. Yeah, and at this point, I mean, it's a different different season with a lot more non-con, but it, on January whatever, what are we, January 8th right now? On January yes. 8th last year, they were 8-7. and seven. Okay, they're 8-2. and two. They're 8-2. and two. Um, okay. So it's a, different, it's a different thing. It's a different season. The Pac-12 is maybe a little bit weaker than, than last year, so that's not yeah. great. It's a weird yeah. COVID year. There aren't as many data points, um, but... If they are able to find the right formula, but they need, I think they need something galvanizing too. Like last year, they had that just kind of galvanizing, just getting smoked at home by Stanford. Um, yeah. Are they going to have something like that again? Did you watch the Colorado? You know what? That could happen on Saturday. <laughs> yeah. Wait, did, did you watch the Colorado Oregon game? Uh, no, but I, so I caught the highlights of it. Okay, this it was so weird. It was like. It was kind of like a little bit of a twilight zone to me because Oregon looks beastly to me. They just yeah. they just look beastly. They've got some guys, man. And there were times in that game when they they put some full court pressure on Colorado and they were overwhelming. Long, great athletes in Colorado just had nothing they could do with it. Just overwhelmed. But Colorado ended up winning. And they ended up winning uh, because of right, for one thing. And he did to Oregon what I was expecting him to do to UCLA, and UCLA kept him from doing it. So putting that all in perspective, it's all – I think both of those teams looked better than UCLA looked, but UCLA beat Colorado, and Colorado beat Oregon. And I thought Oregon as – if you look at Oregon, I think they're better than all three. So it's a weird – it's a weird thing. I mean, Oregon is weird. They, uh, you watch them over a few possessions, you go, oh my god, okay, that that's this team is far and above that that and USC. Uh, I mean, I've watched SC enough and watched flashes and games to where you just say, okay, there's there are no other combination of players on other teams like this, but then they lose. <laughs> yeah, and that's what's weird about Oregon too, to me. If I were if damn, if I were coaching Oregon, I'd. I'd press. I'd pressed for forty minutes, but 
Yeah. So, yes, it's going to be very interesting. Arizona, have you watched Arizona a lot? Yeah. What do you think of them? I think they're pretty good. I absolutely do, too, and I'm not a Sean Miller fan. And I think he's underachieved with the talent he's had while he's been in Arizona. But, man, how do you... How do you put together this international team of all these guys that never played together, never even played like American basketball and de- and transfers and everything and they are, they are pretty damn good. I mean, I I I started off, I got to admit, beginning of the season going, "Oh, come on, they just can't be very." And then over watching them over three or four games saying, "Wow, no, I got to concede. They're pretty good." So yeah. A little scary about it's. You got to be a little scared about Saturday, right? Yeah, I think it's a it's a little nerve wracking for sure. Um, I'm 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 just waiting for the moment where it starts to click from a lineup perspective. Not to get back into that whole discussion, but uh, and I don't think it's going to happen this weekend because Cody Riley just played a great game. But maybe David Singleton plays a little bit more. Maybe they get a little bit more mistake-free at the beginning of the game. Maybe they're able to get out to a run. Um, but yeah, They're going to have to play Jalen Hill in that game. Oh, they're going to have to yeah. play him a lot, and they might have yeah. to play him. To, I mean, they might actually have to do him together um, in this one. Um, and then James Akinjo. <laughs> yeah. that dude. That's a dude, you know, and... Uh, who guards him? Yeah, it's going to be tough. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see. That's going to be a, that's going to be a very very interesting game. But I think they again they have a potential advantage in the post if they would use it. But we'll we'll see. I mean UCLA does. So all right, let's talk a little bit of football before we get out of here. Um, you did a story today on basically because I think people were talking about UCLA's roster for next year and how they're returning essentially 20 starters. Um, and you kind of went through the other Pac-12 teams and how uh, basically everyone is returning. I didn't I didn't only do that. you got to give the credit. All the 24-7 Pac-12 publishers contributed that article. I would not have been able to do that at you, all. You so. compiled and you requested um, yes, but the end result which is, is a big, which is a big job in itself. Yeah, yeah. But the end result is everyone's returning. Like, I, I, I mean, except SC, who loses a lot of guys, but they'll just plug in other guys, uh, and in Oregon, who lost a lot of guys, who will just plug in other guys. Didn't every team have just about ten starters returning on average? Yeah, mo- mostly. <laughs> and I, I would say one one key contender, ASU, is going to have eleven on defense and nine on offense. I mean, Colorado has nine to ten on offense, ten to eleven on defense. It's just, uh, yeah, it's going to be tough. Um, and I, I think that's one of the, my takeaways. Just kind of thinking about next year, and I think a lot of people are, a lot of people are saying, well, they're returning so many guys, so they're just going to fundamentally be better. And I'm like, yeah, they might be qualitatively for sure, but it's not. I mean, it's a uh, you know, wins and losses. We're talking about a zero-sum game here, and they're going to be playing against a bunch of other Pac-12 teams that return a ton of experience and might very well get better qualitatively as well. Yeah. So, what so is, that's a wash. Yeah, that's how does that work out? And yeah. so right yeah. now you would say about this year's team, they were a 3-4 and four team that maybe got a little more unlucky than lucky, right? So maybe they should have gone 4-3, and three, maybe even 5-2. and two. 
Um, but what does that translate to over a you know full conference season? Um, six and three ish at best. Yeah. Five and four. Yeah, with a tough schedule. Um, yeah, it's tough. I mean, and, and that's the thing where it's just there's going to have to be more of a leap than that. Even well, um, here's the thing. Here's the thing for me though, because we're just using numbers of of returning guys, and we'd have to break this down within the Pac-12. What was key for again for UCLA to potentially be maybe uh, better than just uh, you know. Uh, seven and five, or a six and six, or it, it's returning its quarterback, uh, who you could say is at least a two-year starter, if not a two and a half-year starter. Um, it's returning an impact running back. Uh, it returns its entire offensive line intact. Uh, a, a lot of schools, uh, a lot of their schools, aren't necessarily doing those three things. Um, even though there were a lot of them were averaging returning 18 to 20 starters, some of them are replacing quarterbacks and replacing offensive linemen. So, um, I it is all kind of a wash, but I could maybe see you making the and and honestly, I I would if they hadn't returned Dorian Thompson Robinson, they haven't turned returned Britton Brown, or if they lost two offensive linemen. I would have said comparatively to the rest of the Pac-12, even though you think that's not that you're losing that much, that would have been losing a lot compared in this year where everyone's getting an extra year of eligibility. That would be losing a lot. So that, and then I go right back, Dave, to that defensive scheme, which is a... Let's talk about this. Because we're talking about... We're just speculating about so much we don't know, and we just say, well, we'll see... Is, was that a good scheme or not? Is it something that's going to optimize players and make them better, or was it just a fluke? Um, I think it's, uh, not to steal a phrase from Jeff Ulbrich, a little gimmicky, but I'm not opposed to gimmicky. Um, no. I, think it's a, I think it's potentially a decent scheme. Um, I think... The, the problem is it's missing um, – you can't just be that. You can't just be the blitz all the time, you know, bring a lot of different pressures because eventually they will figure it out. And I think they did get figured out to an extent at the end of the year. And some of it was matchup issues, but you're going to have matchup issues. Like there are going to be teams where you just can't man up as well and you need to be able to be diverse. And I don't think this defense – and that's more of a personnel issue than anything could be diverse. Um, they needed to be able to just rush four sometimes and be able to still get some decent pressure on the quarterback. And it just didn't seem like that happened enough, uh, particularly at the end of the year um, against Stanford and USC, which again, those were unique matchups, you know, Stanford with all the size they have at receiver USC with all the talent they have at receiver, but you got to play those two teams every year. Um and you got to play some other teams with some talent. Uh, so if, you know, if you don't have a, an elite edge rusher or somebody who's very good at the very least, um, it's just, there's a limit, I think, to how good your defense can be. Um, and it, so wasn't, what you're even, saying and it is, wasn't even as good as that. I mean, they, I yeah. think they misevaluated perhaps at middle linebacker opting for size over um, playability. Because the thing is, 
I think we, we get sucked into these arguments all the time about uh, who's the size of an inside linebacker. Like, who's the, the physical dimensions of a Mike linebacker? And that's the position where I've made this argument before, but it's the position where you almost have to just prioritize playability. Like, who's the guy who just shows up and makes a lot of tackles in practice? Because that's the guy who should be playing your Mike linebacker. And maybe that was Carl Jones, who's like 210 pounds. Frankly, Jayon Brown was, what, 220 at most when he graduated? Um, yeah. And, I mean, look at Ben Burkirvin up at Washington making a million tackles. And he's like 5'10", 180. Um, it's just, it's. I, I think with that position, it's all, so much more your instincts, um, your tackling ability. But fundamentally, it's just your acumen for the game and your instincts. And I don't think Bo Calvert had it. And I think they misplayed him all year. Um, and that's that's the kind of stuff that gives me pause is just the, the personnel assessments they're making, the personnel evaluations they're making, but also just the bodies they have. Um, I think they need to get uh, an upgraded edge rush. Um, and they just took a million outside linebackers, defensive ends. And apparently none of those guys are, you know, at least this year were able to play that role. So really kind of it goes back – this is really funny because this is kind of circling back to what you are your basic premise of why you are still pessimistic about uh, Chip Kelly's program is that let's just say that the scheme is a fairly good one. The people will scout it and get better against it, but it's not a huge liability like the one we saw in the first two years. And maybe it's a little nimble and can change, but it's going to be about plugging in some talent into it and it's it's there's a doubt there's some doubt whether there's talent on the roster to plug into it so maybe they have to go through the transfer portal and your theory on all that is that is just kind of a whole dubious uh kind of idea that that can be pulled off in time for him to win because let's be honest chip kelly needs a win this year and it's not six wins it's it's got to be a winning season a clearly winning season so he needs some if the if the scheme is even a good one even if it's a good one you need some talent in it. So there has to be a talent upgrade somehow between last year and this year whether that's guys getting a lot better or whether they find it in the transfer portal that has to happen. So yeah, that's and, and what would you say would be you kind of just touched on it. What would be the number one position that they need a talent upgrade at on I, I defense? Think, I think edge rush, and if they can't find a way to get it together from current personnel, um, somebody to man the middle of the you know the second level at linebacker, and then maybe even a safety. But um, I think the fundamental one is edge rush. Uh, See, that's interesting too, because I'd say right there would be middle linebacker play too, because that is that is so. That is so fundamental and key to just about every snap. Yeah, and, I guess what it, I'm saying there is I think they might be able to find an option who's already on the roster. Because they've got they've got a lot of guys who are linebacker sized. Like they've got a lot of guys. I mean, Shea Bryant Struther, try him out there. See if he can play. I mean, and I know some of these guys might not be ideal physical fits, but just just have open tryouts at that role and see because Tracy, do you remember when we were able to watch like full practices and it was just obvious 
Eric Kendricks, it was just obvious. Oh, that's the guy who's making all of the tackles. He's literally <laughs> always there and on the play. Um, yep. And it was just obvious every time. And then when we were watching, I think it was Kenny Young initially, he wasn't. Like, he just wasn't always there. He was not always there making the play. And he's turned out to be an NFL player, but he wasn't very good at UCLA. Um, and it's just maybe one of those guys can emerge, but you have to actually give them the reps and give them the opportunity to do it. Um, but And you're saying you don't think that's Bo Calvert? I, 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 I would say I know that's not Bo Calvert because we didn't okay. see it this year. Um, in as many uh, uh, plays as he had, in as many snaps as he had, to generate as few tackles as he did. Um, let me just pull that up because I think this is, I mean, for for a middle linebacker in a defense, uh, he ended up being the seventh leading tackler on the team this year. Right. Behind uh, Caleb Johnson, who was a lot better, but playing, you know, kind of everywhere. Um, and that's another guy, like, I, I completely spaced on this, but just have him take over that role and relegate Calvert to, I don't know, something else. But I wouldn't start Bo Calvert again. And I I'm, I don't love to, like, just knock individual players. I, I really don't. But it's just talking about that that position as a weakness. Um, but get Caleb Johnson, slide him over, and then put somebody else at his spot. You know, get Carl Jones back into a role that's not marginalized. Uh, because I think Carl Jones was essentially playing, I don't know, kind of an edge rush role last year. Which, fine. But I think you've got to get him on the field more. Um, so... Anyway, I, I, I think there's – basically what I'm saying is they have enough bodies at linebacker that I think they just made a bad evaluation. Um, I think they'll be able to huh, move guys – Huh, that's interesting. Around. Yeah, I think they'll be able to move guys around, and if they give them open tryouts and don't come in with somebody penciled in as their guy, they might be able to find a combination that works. Um, hmm, okay. So you're saying Caleb Johnson moves the middle linebacker? Yeah, do that and then add somebody else in at his spot, um, and maybe that is just Carl Jones playing that role. Um, but – I think they can. I think they can fill this um, with, or at least I think it's possible that they can fill it with personnel they currently have. I think the one key one is, um, you know, a, a real edge rusher, especially because they're going to be losing interior pass rush um, with Osa Digazua moving on. Um, See, that's interesting because I, I I agree with you generally. I, I think um, if you're talking about guys existing on the team who have a chance to fill out a, a bigger role and play better, I think Mitchell Agude definitely has a chance. I mean, he came in, JC had never played, you know, hadn't played any D1 college football. Uh, that had to be a shock to your system. And he, he was pretty solid. He showed flashes. I, I think there's a guy there, potentially. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I... I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Again, we'll see. But I think if you're talking about guys that might grow into a role, it could. I think a Gude has as much chance of growing into an edge rusher as I don't know some of the other linebackers of playing of playing inside and being good. I mean, think back about was Bruce Davis good in his first couple of years? Uh not really, no. And he was kind of playing out of position, too. If you remember, yeah. he was playing, like, essentially an outside linebacker role. And then they finally yeah. moved him to a 4-3 defensive end where he kind of took off. Right, right. So, I mean, I think there's – I think there – there aren't a lot of guys who I'd say, wow, I mean, if they even got a little bit better, they could be really – I think Mitchell Agudi has the length. He has the size. He's got quickness. 
He's going to get stronger. Um, he showed some fast twitch. I, I, I think there's a chance there. And there are other guys at the other at that Raider position too um, that could end up as I was really impressed with uh, Shea. It's Shea, right? Shea Bryant Strother. <laughs> yeah. Shea Bryant Strother. Um, that there's a lot of upside there too. So, yeah, if they could go to the transfer portal, get an elite pass rusher, I don't know if they'd necessarily be targeting that. Um, from what I've heard is that they're looking at like inside linebackers and cornerbacks. Um, and that's but, really interesting yeah. to me because corner, I mean, I think it was fine for its purposes for most of the year. And I think it's going to be a tough matchup for any, like, unless they get like truly a, a <laughs> unless they get somebody who's like an all league and like a power five league transfer, I think it's going to be, you're going to have issues just manning up in coverage against USC and Stanford, no matter what you do. Um, but I thought for most of the year, Mo Osling and Jay Shaw were fine. Yeah. Like, completely fine. Yeah. I kind of agree. So anyway. Okay. All right. Well, that. Well, Dave, we'll see. We will see. This will be the We'll See show. <laughs> we'll see mm. she shells by the seashore. Wow. Look at you. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I do. Okay. Right? Let's end this. All right. You're I'm done? I'm tired. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fine. Guess I'm done then. I'd like to keep talking to you like all day long. I know, I know, I know. I don't want to torture everyone else. No, no, no. We'll just continue afterwards. All right. Uh, well, everyone out there, I uh, hope you are uh, starting your new year off right. Uh, for Tracy Pearson, I'm David Woods, Bruin Report Online, UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and we will talk to you again next time. Continue to stay safe out there, guys.